Welcome to the very first episode, you could say the inaugural episode of the Minutia podcast. Today we're going to be talking about, hey, the inauguration. We will also talk about cabinet picks, Russia, and maybe even some Bruce Springsteen. My name is Joanna, and the most recent movie I saw was Hidden Figures, which I highly recommend. I give it 10 out of 10. My name is Brandon. The most recent movie I saw was not in theaters. It was the movie Deadpool. I also give it 10 out of 10, but it's a very different kind of movie and proof that not all superhero movies are designed for kids. Let's get started. So on this, our first episode, we are discussing the inauguration on our inaugural episode. And as we record this, the inauguration is roughly 14 hours away. So, Joanna, just before we get into any real news, where's your head at right now? Oh, gosh. Um, well, as, as I was telling you earlier today, I was, I was reading, um, and you have to be careful, of course, of um, anecdotal evidence in most things, but I, I put a lot of stock in people's firsthand experiences and firsthand accounts. And I was reading a blog post about someone who really benefited from having government assistance when they were going through a hard part of their life and talking about how they're worried about other people who for the next four or maybe eight years, but I don't want to think about that yet, um, may not have access to the same help that actually got them through to a much better place. And I just started crying. Um, I have not cried since actual election night too much. Um, but I'm just kind of, I don't know. I feel like there's this looming something that's going to happen and I don't know what it is, but it's just like, you know, that you can see just the edge of the dark clouds on the horizon before something comes. It's, it sort of reminds me of like an old Western where you see the dust cloud coming over the hill yeah, and yeah. you don't know what it is, but you know, it can't be good. <laughs> this does not sound good. <laughs> and it sounds, and just full disclosure, we discussed this earlier today, whether it was even worth recording um, an episode of the podcast that would theoretically have a shelf life of 12 hours. But I think it's important for us to sort of have one foot firmly planted in the before. I agree. Whatever comes next for the next four or possibly eight years, um, although with President-elect Trump going into office with the lowest approval rating of anyone in over four decades, it doesn't look great right now. Um, yeah. And I do want to talk when we, in a second about those polls. You know, it, it's very clear we are entering a very, very different era. I, I don't know how it's going to turn out. I don't think anyone does. Anyone who says they do is lying to you. But there is a great unknown and perhaps more so than I can remember ever seeing before. Well, for sure. I mean, from the beginning, Trump was a not even break all the rules, just an ignore all the rules candidate. Nothing has ever applied to him. And and I don't mean just in terms of like societal rules. I mean, like any everything that we've ever known about elections and about how things work and how polls work and all this stuff has just been thrown out the window with him. It's everything has been unpredictable. And I think there is no possible way to know what's really going to happen. And I have heard people go to the extreme on either side saying that he's going to be the best president that we've ever had. These are, of course, people that voted for him. Um, but then other people that are legitimately worried about nuclear holocaust. And I think we're probably looking at something somewhere more in the middle of those two extremes. 
At least I hope. <laughs> I mean, I, I, that seems pretty likely. It, it's a you know a bit of a cliche, but the average U.S. president's going to be somewhere in the middle. They're going to be average. I I don't have particularly high hopes for for Donald Trump going in. And this, just to be clear, is not a it's a somewhat partisan thing. But like, I mean, when George W. Bush was elected, he was not who I wanted to be president. But I didn't have this sense of of it's not even the dread; it's just uncertainty. It's not knowing what's going on. I didn't I didn't start him down the line so far in terms of ranking of presidents because he was a politician. He sort of knew how to do things. He was a standard conservative post Reagan Republican. A friend and I were talking about this the other day that one of the things about George W. Bush is that you never doubted that he loved the country and that he was, even if you disagreed with him, that he was trying to do what he thought was in the best interest of the country. I think that's exactly right. With Trump, we just don't, I mean, he's, he's made it, sort of implicitly and explicitly in his various tweets and his one press conference, made it pretty clear that he can't have conflicts of interest, that he's going to do basically what he wants, and has sort of implicitly said that he's going to do what's best for Donald Trump, not necessarily what's best for the country. Um, and that's disconcerting, I think it's pretty safe to say. And I just wanted to briefly touch on the polls issue. As I said, Donald Trump is, is the least popular president to take office in the last four decades, if not more. His po his net popularity rating is minus 10. Do you see 10. his approval rating is at a lower level than post-Hurricane Katrina Bush? Yes. Yes, I did. I did see that. His approval rating is currently lower than that of the ACA or Obamacare, whichever one you want to call it. And just for the sake of comparison, when President Obama took office, Eight years ago, his approval rating was, or favorability rating, I should say, because it's not approval rating until they're actually in office. His favorability rating was about 79%, and Donald Trump's right now is covering somewhere around 35%. And that's remarkably low, particularly because president-elect, president, presidents-elect, president, what? You're the English major. Is it presidents-elect? Is that right? President-elect, I believe, okay. would be the correct I've never actually had to think about that plural before. Neither had I until this very moment. So typically presidents-elect have a, see a boost in their approval rating, their favorability rating, as they go through transition because they're senior and they get their cabinet in place. And that has just not occurred here. Well, I mean, the cabinet. <laughs> right. That's, that's, we'll get, put a pin in that for two seconds because okay. as he has wont to do, president-elect Trump has tweeted out, the same polls that said I was losing Hillary Clinton are, they were wrong then, they're wrong now. So everyone loves me, basically. And the polls that predicted the, or not predicted, it's not the right word, but the polls before the election Forecasts. had Hillary Clinton up by about two percentage points, give or take, and in the key states. And that's well within a normal polling error. In fact, this is something most people don't realize. The polling in this election was actually more accurate than the polling in the 2012 election. But the 2012 election, the error was in President Obama's favor, so he actually won by more than the polls predicted, so no one noticed. In this case, the error switched the victor. Yeah. Um, so, but we'll give him we'll give him the outside edge and say that it was three points off in the in the general election. Well, even if you move his favorability rating up three points, give it that same margin of error, it's still terrible. You could even bump it up to 40. Right. And, and, and also, 
the way these polls are conducted is very different than the way the election polls are conducted. It's a very different perspective because you know, before the election, you ask people who they're going to vote for. They may not tell you. They may not answer the phone. You ask people what they think of someone. Or they're they going to may tell vote you. for someone else entirely. Right here, you ask them what they think. What what you what they think of someone. They're just going to tell you. There's no end game to not saying what they think about somebody. So they're going to say it if they you know if they have an opinion. With that, let's transition to the cabinet picks. Just a, a brief note here. There are. I actually saw a statistic about this earlier today. There are 690 Senate confirmable jobs in the executive branch in the president under the president. That is a lot. It is, but most of them are just token rubber stamp, you know, undersecretary of the assistant to blah blah blah. Right. As of today, take a guess. Out of 690, how many do you think they've nominated? Uh, I'm going to go with 200. 28. Out of 690. 28. So who's in the positions as of 1201 tomorrow? The executive branch effectively ceases to exist. Oh, great. There are the career workers who are the civil servants who are still going to be there, but the people who are in the leadership positions are largely gone. Now, the Trump administration has, in the last day, asked 50 senior staff to stay on, and they've agreed to do so. But well, Nobody will know what's going on if they don't. Right, and there have been reports that President-elect Trump is from the intelligence community, which, of course, he has his own issues with, that he is remarkably, he and his team, not just him, but the, the administration as a whole, is remarkably ill-prepared, hasn't done their homework, and is not ready for the rigors of office. And perhaps this is most illustrated by the fact that the day after the inauguration tomorrow, Trump is taking a vacation with his family. Who knows what things are going to look like at 12.01 tomorrow, but let's talk about some of those, the, the senior cabinet level positions. So, Joanna, pick one to start us with. Why don't we just jump right in and start with the education secretary? Oh, that sounds like fun. <laughs> yes. We were we were debating how to say her name earlier. Uh, Betsy DeVos? Davos? DeVos? Yes. Um, I've heard it a couple different ways. But she is, in particular, I think, I mean, it's hard to just pick one because there are so many right now, but she is the nominee for the Secretary of Education position. And I don't know if she's been confirmed as of today, but she, she will be. She's I, There's nobody else at this point, and I don't know. Do people ever actually get turned down for these jobs? I'm not even sure. It is exceptionally rare, and typically it has to be some sort of scandal, and also not just a scandal, but one that typically emerges as a surprise during the nomination process. People right. who have baggage going in are very rarely turned down. Yeah. The problem is, in her interview with the, the Senate committee that is doing these interviews, she failed to answer questions or incorrectly answered questions about basic educational discussions. Like one of the big debates right now in U.S. public education is public school versus private school versus charter schools and where government funding should go and whether or not schools should be held to an equal standard if they receive government funding. And she was asked, I think, four or five times directly do you support equal evaluation of these schools i don't remember the exact phrase or um equal accountability for all schools and she said she supported accountability but she wouldn't say what kind of accountability like she just she refused to answer the question 
And there were several questions like that where people would ask her direct questions about, you know, there's a big debate right now in the core curriculum in educational standards and whether or not uh, students should be judged based on their proficiency, which is just testing at a certain level or their yeah, proficiency is, is the no child left behind policy. Exactly. Um, or their growth over a period of time. So maybe the child doesn't, maybe the student doesn't reach proficiency for their grade level, but they have improved so dramatically that they're going to, that that's considered a win because they were coming from so far behind, relatively speaking. And she completely mixed up the two things. She basically combined them into one thing and didn't understand that it's it's a very hotly debated topic. It's one of the most debated topics in education right now. And, you know, talk to a teacher for 10 minutes and just ask them about standardized testing and you will you will hear about it. <laughs> so I as as far as I can tell, as far as I think anybody can tell, she has this job because of her family's donations to the Republican Party and not because of any knowledge she has on her part. Am I being too partisan? No, you're, you're being accurate. There are a lot of very questionable nominees, soon to be cabinet-level secretaries, most likely, although maybe Rex Tillerson's going to go to doubt because Marco Rubio and John McCain seem to particularly dislike him. But there, this is arguably the least experienced cabinet in modern memory. And she is uniquely unexperienced amongst them. Yes. She doesn't have an education degree. She has no experience teaching. She's never set foot in a public school. Her kids all went to private schools. She is on the record uh, saying really, like, not good things about public schools. But that's how 90% of kids get educated in this country. She says the public school teachers are way overpaid, uh, which is just my, like, that's just objectively mind-blowing. I don't understand how anybody can possibly think that public school teachers are overpaid. And basically her qualifications for this position seem to be that she is very wealthy and contributed to the Republican Party, and she wants to reshape schools for Jesus. And if you're religious, that's your business. I'm not going to you know, criticize someone for their religious beliefs, but it's pretty clear, the courts have made it abundantly clear that there is no place for religious instruction. There's religious education is fine. If you want to teach religions of the world, if you want to teach something like that, it's fine. But religious instruction is not okay in schools. It's um, our separation of church and state. Exactly, precisely. And that is effectively a state-sponsored religion, because, or state-endorsed, at least, religion, um, if there is religion taught in schools. And this, by the way, is not you know, something that happened a long, long ago. My, my mom and probably your parents grew up in schools saying the Lord's Prayer every morning. Yeah. So this is not something in the long, long, faraway past. But yeah, she's just, uh, oh, really quickly, those two senators who questioned her, the first you mentioned was Tim Kaine, former vice presidential candidate, and yes. the other was Al Franken. Yes. Two of the sharper minds and tongues on the um, Senate committee. I believe she had a few words with Elizabeth Warren as well. I can't remember about what specific. She did, and I also can't remember. And then, of course, the thing that we, we joked about before we got before we started recording, which is the fact that when someone, and I can't recall who, asked her about guns in school, she said they may need them in Wyoming to fight off grizzlies. It was the senator, the senator from the district um, where Sandy Hook is, because he was concerned about guns and gun safety and guns in schools. No, she referenced a specific school in Wyoming where she was pretty sure they had a gun to protect them from grizzlies, which is just like, 
okay. <laughs> right, of all the things you can, because, I mean, there there is a, as with everything with guns, there is a debate to be had, and there are a lot of subtleties and nuances. We need to kill grizzlies who are invading the school is not really high on that list. So, she is, again, seems remarkably unqualified for this job, but is sadly probably going to get confirmed. So, let's quickly step through a couple of the other ones, the other people that are out there waiting for confirmations, the other big controversial ones, I would say, probably Jeff Sessions for Attorney General, and Rex Tillerson for Secretary of State. Sessions is um, Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III, which you have to say in that accent, um, like, you're, like you're walking off Gone with the Wind, is a senator from Alabama, has a, we'll call it checkered history with civil rights, and was denied the federal bench in the 80s, I believe it was 84, maybe 86, by a Republican-controlled Congress because they basically felt he was too, had too many racial questions in his past. And he also stated... Apparently that's not an issue anymore. No, it's not. Remember, John Roberts said we're post-racial now. Um, That's why the Voting Rights Act was struck down in in large part. And also during his confirmation hearing, Jeff Sessions said that he didn't think there needed to be any special protections for women's or LGBT people because they aren't subject to discrimination like black people are. Which is just... There is so much to parse and dissect in that sentence that it kind of hurts my brain. I don't even think that we can. Like, no. I, I, we would be here for hours if we tried to break all that down. Just go look at, really, just go look at Jeff Sessions' history. Look at him calling African American attorneys "boy" and telling him what, telling an aide, "Watch what you say around the white people" and this, that, and the other. What I really want to talk about is Rex Tillerson. Okay. He is the Exxon outgoing Exxon CEO. I believe that he is. If he's not retired, he is very well. I guess he's going to be if he's Secretary of State. He's the nominee to be Secretary of State. He has zero political experience, zero foreign policy experience outside of negotiating deals for Exxon. And most significantly, I would argue, he has rather substantial ties to Russia. Yep. Including getting the Medal of Friendship from Vladimir Putin himself. Yep. So, Joanna, why is Russia important? Oh, gosh. We are on the eve of the inauguration of our... 45th president, there are credible sources that say not only that there may have, uh, that the Kremlin may have, we'll say blackmail material uh, over I believe the they call it compromat. It's compromising they, material. They do. Compromising material about the president-elect. But there is a reasonable, uh, there is reason to believe there has also been collusion. If not from the, the president-elect than with people in his campaign, um, and that there was money exchanged from the Russian government in some form to his campaign in some form. And that is coming not from some random single person, but it's it's pretty solidly supported by members of the intelligence community, um, which is disturbing on many levels and has has led to this whole cascade of other things happening in the last week and a half, I would say, since it became public knowledge. Although, interestingly, apparently our intelligence community had knowledge of this back in June, and we only found out about it last week. We now have the context for back in June when Harry Reid, who was part of the what they call the Gang of Eight in the Senate and House, 
and is privy to the the highest of high level uh, intelligence briefings. The Gang of Eight are the are the eight most senior people in Congress. Right. So it includes the Vice President, the Speaker of the House, um, the the Minority Leader, like all the those type people. Right. The, exactly. the eight most senior Congress people. And um, also, of course, went to the President as well. And Harry Reid released a statement at the and we didn't really understand why at the time, but it said that James Comey, who is the FBI director, had information regarding Russia and Trump that needed to be released to the American public. At the time, we didn't know what it was, and most people dismissed it as basically partisan squabbling. Mm -hmm. And more and more has come out, and this information has been um, substantiated by, well, Let's pause for a second here. There's two things to discuss. The first is, did Russia interfere or make, take steps to interfere in the election in order to try to secure Trump the presidency? And the second is, are they actually colluding with Trump? Right. The first one is, at this point, pretty much fact. Um, you have every intelligence agency in our country, in other countries. You have this intelligence officer in MI6 who is like James Bond, apparently, um, all saying that the Russians, on orders from Vladimir Putin, so from the very highest levels, they hacked into the DNC and the RNC. They hacked into both, but they only released stuff from the DNC. They released um, John Podesta's emails via WikiLeaks and Julian Assange, and they use that in an attempt to influence the election. When people talk, but Russia says that they didn't do it. Right. Yes. And so that <laughs> that has been that has it sounds that sounds like a joke. That sounds like something that a five year old says. But that's something that was Donald Trump's response was Russia yeah. says they didn't do it. Julian Assange says it didn't come from them. I believe them, which is really troubling because he is that literally means he's believing a foreign power, President Elect Trump, who in fourteen hours will be President Trump says he believes these people over our own intelligence community. This is not partisan hackery. These are intelligence officers, people who go out there and put their lives on the line in both civilian agencies and in the military, many of whom, by the way, are very conservative and who vote Republican and who are very, very much the true patriots of this country have gone out there and said, this is what happened. They're not saying... If you hear someone say the Russians hacked the election... There are a lot of times people will oversimplify and say that in order to try to discredit what happened. They, no one is claiming they actually hacked the election itself. They didn't hack votes. They didn't you know change tumber, uh, totals or anything like that. What they did is they hacked the emails and influenced the election. That's the key: is they influenced the election to try to push it to Trump. And that's pretty much, as I said, indisputable fact. Well, and the, it was a multifaceted thing. They they spread fake news. They posed as Americans to incite doubt. They, I mean, there were. It was very. It was complicated and impressive. The the levels to which this thing went. It was. It was. It was. Yeah, both complicated and impressive. And also, again, with that level of complexity shows that this had to be run by the government and you know with pretty significant resources and um, pretty clearly tied to Putin. The second question, and the one that is still up in the air, although it's currently under investigation, is whether the Trump campaign colluded in this, whether they've actually been exchanging information with the Russian government. Knowledgeable participants. Are they knowledgeable participants? Exactly. Right. 
which changes this, which changes the calculus rather significantly, because it goes from being a foreign power interfering in our elections to literally treasonous actions, because it's collusion with a foreign power to disrupt an American election. That is being investigated. What happens with that, we shall see. But the thing that kind of blows my mind is that the concept of Russians hacking emails to influence the election has somehow become a partisan issue. And it shouldn't be. It should yeah. be the, the – regardless of who won. You, 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 need to, you have to separate the outcome of the election from the hacking. The, ha- the outcome of the election is dis- – you can argue about it, fine, that's politics, whatever. The hacking by Russia, the evidence is so overwhelming, and all the agencies are so united in agreement. Which almost never happens. Right, exactly. That it's almost unthinkable. It, it, the odds of it not have, having happened are so slim, and that should be a nonpartisan issue. Aside from the outcome of the election – Everyone in America should be concerned about Russians attempting to influence our election. And saying, well, it's okay because look what was in those emails. We need to know about them is not okay. That's literally unjustified the means in the worst way possible. And that's been the only excuse given is, you know, obviously hacking is bad, but look what we learned from it, which is uh, just, it undermines it. it. It means, you know, hacking is bad, but not really. Like, that's just, it's scary. Scary. Right, it's the sort of wink, wink. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah, well, yeah, but it, it's really, it's okay. No, we're, we're not. You know, we, we won, so it's okay. And it's just, it's, it's a situation where, again, we talked about this before. It adds to the doubt of what happens after tomorrow. Yeah. What happens when Trump is the president? What happens when he and his twenty-eight appointees take control with a Republican Senate and a Republican House? I am one of those people who is very much opposed to the idea of any party, whether it's the party I'm supporting or the party I'm against, being fully in control of the government. I think that it's it leads to only bad things for the American people because it allows for half or more than half even of the electorate and the population to be ignored because there's no there's no incentive to compromise or move off of ideological positions because you're the majority, we're done. That's that is one of the one of the challenges of having basically a two party system is that you run this risk where it can be completely on one side and there is no at that point there's no really effective check for it. Um, there's you know, there's no other side to kind of temper everything. We we as a, a country seem to do best when we're kind of hitting somewhere in the middle. You know, obviously, you don't want to go too far one way or the other because, you know, you don't want to sacrifice our economy on <laughs> on certain things. So, like, you know, being conservative and economical in some ways makes a lot of sense of this being fiscally responsible and balanced budgets and things like that, which are very traditional Republican or more traditional Republican values, I think, has has a lot of worth. There's a lot to it. You know, you, you need the accountants to be like, well, I know that you really want to take that vacation to Tahiti, but maybe you should look at Hawaii instead, because Hawaii is still a great place you can go and lay on the beach on an island, but the plane ticket costs far less and you don't need a passport. You know what I mean? Like, I, maybe maybe my metaphor is, is not perfect, but... No, it, may, you it know, makes sense. You, you mean, there, there are certainly, there are, there are good and bad ideas from both sides. 
Exactly. And when they can work in concert or where they can cooperate and find compromise, I think that we benefit the most from it because, you know, you want to have healthcare provided for people, but we also can't have it break the bank, which, you know, is a, is a very legitimate concern. You have to find the money from somewhere. It is. Um, to, to make one more quick analogy, because I do want to talk about healthcare. You know, no matter how great a writer is, every writer out there has editors. Mm-hmm. No one can write a great novel on their own. You have to have editors. You have to have other people looking at it and helping you. Because when you write it yourself, you see no reason to change anything. You wrote it. It's done. It's good. Let's, be, let's move on. You need other people come in and say, this isn't right, this isn't good, this could be better, and then you improve it and it comes in. You you go from having something terrible to The Great Gatsby or something like that. Right. Let's talk about healthcare for a minute. Yeah, let's talk about healthcare. So, of course, one of the big things that the Republicans have been campaigning on and promising for years, we've had, I don't even know how many, dozen plus, dozens maybe, of symbolic votes by the House to repeal Obamacare which, of course, went nowhere in the Senate. Now they actually have the numbers to, to do it. And it turns out, I actually read an article about this uh, this week, that said it's really easy to keep voting to, quote-unquote, repeal when you don't actually when you know it's not going to happen and you don't actually get to have to do anything. You could just make this big symbolic gesture. Now if they vote to repeal, it will actually repeal it, and they have to do something about it, which is, of course, where the challenge comes in. Because if they just repeal the ACA and don't replace it, and really don't replace it immediately, it's 20 million people without health insurance, it's going to add a ton of money to the budget, the CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, which is about as nonpartisan a group of people as you can find, has said it's going to add a tremendous amount of money to the budget, and basically, people will die. Literally, people will die, or they'll be forced to choose between like feeding their families and paying for their cancer treatments, and not having health insurance in place is going to cost people their lives. Well, and the thing about the ACA is it's not just health insurance for those 20 million people. It does a lot more than that. And I think there are many people who've benefited from it who maybe don't realize that that's what they're benefiting from or they don't care that that then other people won't be able to because the ACA, Obamacare, is the thing that means that insurance companies can't turn you down for a pre-existing condition which, by the way, pre-existing conditions include things like pregnancy. Like, of, you can be turned down for insurance if you find out you're pregnant and try to, to get insurance to help you pay for having a baby, which, by the way, is super expensive. Um, they can turn you down for that without the Affordable Care Act. But it's also the thing that allows students or young adults who are up till age 26 can stay on their parent or guardian's insurance. And that has been huge because the economy has been lagging since the recession in 2008. I mean, it's it's picked back up, but the job market, and not the economy, the job market has struggled a little. And it's been hard for college graduates to find work immediately after college anymore. Sometimes it's taking people a couple of years. And having that extra couple of years that they can have health insurance through their parents or their guardians, I mean, who knows how many people have benefited from that? I, I could probably Google it. I'm not going to right now, but that alone is such a huge thing. It is, and the thing is, if when you when you parse out the the items in the ACA and Obamacare, and you pull people on those individual provisions, and you ask them, you know, are you in favor of or opposed to insurance companies 
being able or not being able to reject people pre existing conditions? Are you in favor or opposed to kids being able to stay on their parents if they're 26? Those sort of provisions are immensely popular. I mean, we're yeah. talking 85, 90% approval, which is unheard of in this day and age. Yeah. But when you package all as the ACA or as Obamacare, although, of course, there is, you know, there are plenty of videos and stories around people who think the ACA and Obamacare are different things. The ACA is great and Obamacare is terrible. Um, when you package it all, people just have this very visceral reaction to it and they don't like it. And or with it or they'll say, well, I like that part, that part and that part, but I don't like the individual mandate and I don't like the um, taxes on the wealthy. The wealthy tend to be able to say this the most. And that sort of thing. But the thing is, there's only a limited pool of resources. And if you want to be able to expand coverage, you have to expand the pool. There is a give and take. If you want everyone to be covered, it's going to cost more. Or if you want it to cost less, it's going to have be fewer coverage and more expensive options. Fewer people being covered and more expensive options. Hold on. You said something interesting there because you said if you want to have everyone covered. And I think that that is a key thing to point out. The reason being that the person that has said that they want to have everyone covered and covered beautifully is the president-elect. Trump has said that everyone, that he wants to have everyone covered. And he has said this for, for years. This isn't a new thing. Um, but he said it just, that, was it two days ago to the Washington Post, I think? He did. He repeated Post, it. I, he, uh, I don't remember. A couple of days ago, though, he repeated it. I think it was the Washington Post. And the problem is with that, that, that is not what most, I would say, congressional Republicans actually want. So it's the NHS. Want... It's, it's, a, it's the British system. It's the, or the Canadian system, whichever one you want to go exactly. with. Exactly. Uh, universal health care. That's what it is. So if you say universal health care, that's, that's where people balk. They don't want universal health care. See, the, the fascinating thing, though, with, with health care is it's this weird – it's not even a bell curve. It's this weird curve where it goes up. The costs – the overall costs go up, 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 up. But then once you actually hit universal health care, the costs go down a yeah. lot because you have a single payer, the government, negotiating all of the deals. And because they are representing the, the interests of 300 million people, they have a lot of bargaining power and yeah. they can get the best deals for everybody. And the thing about that also is that having everyone insured makes sense from a capitalist perspective. Because it encourages entrepreneurship. People will will stay in jobs they don't like. If they have great, if, there are people who have great ideas, but will stay in jobs they like because they have a slip disc in their back, or they have some sort of congenital disease, they have all sort of colitis, or whatever. And, or they get pregnant. Right, and so they'll stay in a job they don't like and do what they love because they need the benefits. When yeah. you have universal coverage. It encourages entrepreneurship. It encourages people to spend more money because they don't worry about saving money for some sort of catastrophic injury. It helps the economy to have everyone insured, period. There's just no question about that. Well, and it helps people overall to stay healthy because people, if if you're not having to pay out of pocket to, say, go for an annual checkup or a physical, you are more likely to go. You know, you're not going to get to the point where you're dependent on calling 911, taking a $5,000 ambulance ride that then the the taxpayers have to eat the cost of and being in the emergency room. We're paying for it anyway. Exactly. We, we are paying for it anyway. We are just paying it in critical care instead of in preventive care. Right. I'd rather, if it's me, 
I, I, I'd rather pay less and not have someone go through that pain to get to that point. Yeah. That seems like a benefit to me. So the really interesting thing is with, with the replacement debate is there doesn't seem to be a really coherent plan just yet. There are several plans, but they don't resemble each other all that much. And so side note, what have they been doing all this time if they haven't come up with a replacement? Right. You've had six years to figure out a replacement plan, and they're like, eh, we should probably find something. What's that under the couch? Yeah. It's just, I, I don't understand how they can be in the situation where they have no idea what to do. And, of course, the single most cravenly political thing they've discussed doing is passing a repeal and then pausing the repeal to take effect until after the midterm elections of two years. Yep. So that they are not holding the bag. Right. Oh, and very quickly, just to, to clarify before we finish this up, anyone who is listening who has insurance through the ACA, you have insurance for the next year. Yes. That's done. That cannot go away. So that's just yes. important to know. Through, it, through the end of 2017. Right. So I guess you have insurance for the next, you know, 50 weeks, not a full year, but you know what I mean. As, as we wrap things up here, what's your prediction for what, what will happen in the next week? Well, now that I know that the, the Trump family is taking a vacation, I don't know. How long are they gone? I'm not sure. I, I didn't yeah. see that. I just saw it mentioned they were taking a vacation. I want to say it was like a three-day vacation, but maybe it's a little more. Okay. Well, I mean, work starts on Monday morning, theoretically. Um, I mean, if you're the president, work starts as soon as you put your hand on the Bible and take that oath of office. Yeah, I, I will give you that. But usually, usually, there's a whole weekend of parties and balls and events and socials. And I mean, there are inauguration balls happening. Yeah. They're not all tomorrow night. Um, there will be some on Saturday and some on Sunday. And it's interesting because the whole time he has made comments about, well, how much of the time can I spend in New York? How much of the time can I spend in Mar-a-Lago in Florida? Um, did you see he called what he, he referred to that as the winter white house this past weekend? I did. I did. I just, that I just tried to ignore. I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't comprehend one more thing right now. So no, <laughs> um, I, I think I was going to give it till Monday, but I think now whatever day he gets back, something is going to happen. I don't know what, but I feel like, like something will come up. Fair enough. I, I, I mean, I agree with you. I don't, this whole thing has been so unpredictable in every way. I'm not going to venture a guess as to what's going to happen, but I agree. Something is going to happen because the way that Donald Trump ha lives and has lived ever since, I mean, he was handed a, a million dollar, a small million dollar loan from his dad. <laughs> he inherited billions, which, by the way, he has squandered most of. I saw an article in, in the New York Times from months ago during the campaign that said that if Donald Trump had, he says he's worth $2 billion. And if he had taken the money his dad gave him, his dad left him when he died, and he had put it in mutual funds, which are the most boring and safe investments you can make, and had just finger-painted for the next 40 years, he'd be worth over $10 billion right now. Yeah. He has squandered that money. So... What he does, so he 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 does he he just inherits the money, he then becomes he goes on the Apprentice and is in not just a reality show but a reality show where he's the producer and also decides who leaves the show, so it's a reality show where he literally creates the reality, 
and then moves on to defy every expectation and become president of the United States somehow, and those words just escape my mouth and kind of hurt my soul a little bit. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? Something's going to happen without a question. What's going to happen? Not a clue. Yeah. So. Have to wait and see. Yeah. So before we wrap up, I always like to try to end things. You'll see this as we go on, on something a little fun. So this is slightly politics related, but it amuses me, so I want to bring it up. All right. So, Joanna, are you familiar with a man by the name of Bruce Springsteen? I am familiar with a man named Bruce Springsteen. Do you know what he did this past week? Oh, which which thing would you like to discuss that he did this past week? Well, it, it's something that involves President Obama. Okay. I may not be familiar with this. I, I know the other thing that sort of involves Bruce Springsteen, but go ahead. Well, what's the thing you're thinking of? I, I have been entertained multiple times on Twitter by people continuing to retweet this thing that said the man that won the presidential election on his ability to close a deal was unable to book a Bruce Springsteen cover band. Well, that is, that is half of, of right. what, I, what I wanted to refer to. So yes, I saw that. I thought that was hilarious. That person deserves every retweet they got. Yeah. So this past Friday, president Obama invited Bruce Springsteen to the white house to put on a private concert for his staff, which you gotta feel like was a little bit of a trolling, thumbing the nose move at saying you couldn't get Bruce Springsteen's cover band to form your inauguration. I had the real Bruce Springsteen <laughs> come to my house. Yeah. So that's my that's my lighter news for the week. Hopefully, most of the time it'll be a little bit lighter than that. But it's inauguration week. You get what you get. Yes. So this is where we are right now. <laughs> this is where we are right now. So before we go, um, what is? Can you give me what was the the best? article that you read this week what is your source of the week my source of the week is an article i actually just read it today mm -hmm. really really excellent and it was it actually came out like five o'clock this afternoon and it was on 538 and it was an article talking about how president obama remained pretty somewhere between pretty and very popular for his entire term but somehow the democrats gradually lost control of the house the senate although they stayed the majority they lost a lot of seats lost governorships, lost state legislatures, and just a really interesting discussion of how President Obama's popularity did not filter down and bolster the party as a whole. It's a really, really good article. It was a companion piece to one they did about the Republican Party much, much earlier in the summer, written by the fantastic Harry Enten, who is the stat guy sort of there, and Claire Malone, who's their senior writer. Fabulous article. Can't recommend it highly enough. Really, really good stuff. Cool. Let's put that in the notes. Sure. Okay. Um, and what did you read this week? My read this week, it's it's probably slightly more than a week old now, but it was from the BBC and it was, we referenced it in passing earlier, but there is an ex-MI6 uh, officer named Christopher Steele who wrote an article for BBC that was specifically talking about the information relating to the Trump campaign and the Kremlin and talking about how he thinks it's a, a verifiable source. Like, you know, all of it, he kind of breaks it down for you and lays it all out and then explains, you know, how he went about trying to give credence to it or how he went about trying to uh, confirm it. And it's very interesting. I read that one as well. It is excellent. I can't recommend it highly enough. In fact, I think you sent it to me. Um, so we'll also put that in the show notes because it is a very, very good read. Mm-hmm. 
On that note, we are going to take things home. This is probably going to get posted after the inauguration, so we'll see how much of what we're saying is just completely inaccurate. <laughs> but he's going to be on vacation for a few days, so we have some time for this to still be relevant. <laughs> we'll see who gets the most points for being right. Are there really winners here, Joanna? No. Really? No. No. Well, on that somber note, we will <laughs> see you all soon, hopefully next week or so. Please subscribe to us, the Minutia Podcast, here on iTunes or whatever your particular podcast listening software is. So you can also follow us on Twitter. Joanna, what's the Twitter handle? At the Minutia Pod. At the Minutia Pod, easy to remember. And also you can email us at the Minutia Podcast at gmail.com. Imagine that. Should be easy to remember. We love to hear your thoughts. We, if there's anything you particularly would like to hear from us, any topics you'd like to cover, we are open to suggestions. I'm not going to say we'll change the entire podcast as though we were short order cooks in a diner, which is an analogy someone used just a moment ago off the air. But if you have something you want to hear us talk about, we are always happy to hear suggestions. Please recommend us to your friends. So we hope you've enjoyed what we have to say, and we'll be back soon. Until next time, I'm Brandon. I'm Joanna. And we'll see you then. Bye.